Did I just say I hope we enjoyed it as much as we did? did I, I, just... I think I think you're you're nervous. I think I just said I hope we enjoyed it as much as we did. <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have to go back in on that one. I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Tradesplaining. We're here to have sharp, fun conversations with cool people as we touch on issues of trade, current events, and expat life. Along the way, we poke a little fun at international development and ourselves, Marty from the perspective of a millennial who hasn't done much yet, and myself, a seasoned middle-aged middle manager. Our goal? It's to get to the heart of today's big issues and figure out what's important and why. Basically, we're here to make trade great again, one episode at a time. Actually, we can take that out now. We're post-election. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 7 of Tradesplaining. We're happy to have you here on the broadcast. We've got a very interesting episode for you today. This one will be focusing on China. China? China. And its huge role in the reality and the hype of trade. That's right. On this podcast, not a broadcast, later on, we'll also be speaking with Charles Clover, journalist for the Financial Times Group, currently serving as an editor for Nikkei Asia Cover Stories. And despite having covered Iraq, Ukraine, Jordan, Russia, and China, we've been assured that he is definitely not MI6 and does not own a tux or a British accent. Now, without further ado, or is it with no further ado? Now, with no further ado. I think it's without. Without further ado. That's how it's written. Let me just go back to the script here. You read the script. Yeah. There's a missing apostrophe. Without further ado, folks, let's get into it. Well, folks, this is becoming a recurring bit in our podcast, and that is the input from listeners, which seems to keep rolling in on a regular basis. And are improving the telecast based on the input. They are improving it and making me cry at night. A little bit of crying. Also, but we won't read those ones. So the first bit of feedback that we received comes from one listener who said that, I quote now, I'm not a podcast person, but this one is cool. I'm listening to this on my way to the dentist, and in fact, I'm feeling less pain. So I think here we got a practical application of trade splitting. So if you're going to do something painful, this could be a thing to help kind of reduce the anxiety there. Listen to the soothing sounds of trade splitting. We got another one. I think this is equally important for us, which is why does Rob sound more woke than Artie, who's two generations younger? And the answer is because Artie's still asleep. Artie wakes up a little later than, than me. I'm, a, I'm an early bird. You know, got to get up early. You are woke very early. It's a great awakening. <laughs> and so your family also waited. Actually, again. yeah, this one is actually a true story. My Trump-supporting cousin is convinced that there was voter fraud, specifically in Wisconsin, which, quote-unquote, there was something fishy going on. And he also is convinced that Rob had something to do with Wisconsin voting for Biden. Rob, care to comment? I think I can now talk about this. The election's over. 21 years ago, foreseeing this very problem, Celeste was brought into the world, our daughter. And over those 21 years, we prepared her to move to Wisconsin and to vote in Dane County. So, yes, I mean, this is as, as deep state conspiracies go. This is, this is deep. How deep is your state? How deep? <laughs> you had some good foresight to plan that ahead. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Knowing I'm, that Trump was coming. While this, was is, this is how much we're focused on stopping this this heroic figure. 
So to my cousin out there who's probably hate listening to this as we speak, you're welcome. <laughs> anyway, keep those comments and feedback coming. Send in your thoughts and diatribes to trade.splaining at gmail.com. As always, once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And you can even write positive stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We can receive that too. So now we're entering into the news recap, and I wonder, did anything happen? A few things happen. A lot of things happen, besides the election, or... Oh, there, oh the ele- there was an election. There was an election. Ah, okay. We've now entered election month. It's election... For those of you months. who are It's election months. They're exactly. coming, yeah. Rudy Giuliani is on the case, so rest assured that something will happen. Every vote will be counted. Legal vote. But we are not going to talk about that. No. What we will be talking about was something that also does have a bit of significance with regards to the election, and that is China. China looms large in most discussions nowadays about trade, climate, geopolitics, future of work, and even in the world of hopping goat videos. Yes, that's a thing. That's definitely a thing. So we'll so we'll try to run down, I mean, a few issues. This will set up a little bit our conversation with Charles later, who covered China and was based in Beijing for the past few years. All right. So maybe let's just start with a, a rundown of the key things we think are significant this week. So recently, Chinese exports have surged to a record high of 14% of world exports. According to the World Economic Forum, as the global economy restarts, China and Chinese firms are rushing to grab market share as their rivals grapple with reduced manufacturing capacity. So we were seeing this a direct consequence of COVID. Now, the question we want to ask is, is this a good thing? Where does that leave us post-COVID in terms of reshoring that we're hearing about? Is this sort of Amazonification of China, a permanent thing that's here to stay. Hashtag Bezos Mi Mucho. Yeah, I mean, I think what we're asking also is we heard COVID is accelerating some trends. For instance, manufacturing moving out of China, moving to other Asian mm-hmm. economies, even moving to some of the African economies we work in, that supply chains were going to shorten, as you said, nearshoring. And in fact, what we see is a massive increase in Chinese exports and Chinese companies positioned to take more market share. So what we thought might be happening, I think, is not borne out presently in the statistics. So we, of course, were watching that, but additional concentration in these companies, I think will be a challenge for, for those of us who are working in the developing world more broadly to, to find opportunities for the companies we work with to enter some key markets. Mm, mm. Yeah. So it is a, a case of the rich getting richer in many aspects, and this is true in global trade as well. So we've talked a lot in the past about how the tech companies, the tech giants have gained enormously and profited enormously from COVID as it's sped up trends that have already been there. This is more concentration, something we've been worrying about in trade in general. Exactly. That it's these kinds of concentrations that make people skeptical of the value of trade. Exactly. The next bit, maybe on a more positive note, is that China has recently announced that their goal is to be carbon neutral by 2060. The EU, in comparison, has not committed to a hard date, but soon might do so to a similar target. The US of A something we know a little bit about, as we know, seems to be heading for a change of heart that might put them on the road to be carbon neutral by mid-century or so. Right. So Biden has talked about being carbon neutral by 2050. It's something he mentioned on the campaign trail. Wind, solar, and others were a recurring theme in his stump speeches. So hopefully, let's see. Does that mean we have to have tiny windows now? Can't have windows? Windmills cause cancer, is what I was told. (laughs) Terrible for the birds. So maybe. (laughs) And they make this terrible sound. It's a whoomp. Whoomp. Home. It sounds like the, the sub from The Hunt for Red October. Good movie. Yeah, I watched it again. Did you? Rip Sean Connery. Did what, you, you watched the first one? I thought you only watched sequels. The, there was only one with Sean Connery. It plays a bad Russian accent. Oh, is that, that's, that's his character. <laughs> like, okay, comrade. 
Let's go. Take me to periscope depth. <laughs> so we've mentioned the US, China and the EU all looking at different degrees of going carbon neutral. These three combined account for over 45% of global emissions. So I think we could say that's a positive step in maybe putting us on our way to save the world. Maybe. It'll be hotter, but it won't be as hot. As hot. Might be good. Maybe we get some beachfront property here in Geneva. Well, I think it's amazing to see whether, let's say weather, that a pun? China is going to lead us on this. Was that a pun? Weather? Weather. Like China will look very changing? nice. Yeah. No, it wasn't. Yes, of course it was. Cut that back in. Whether China will lead us on this. So we know there's a global struggle. And in general, we think the West should be, and I'm putting using air quotes right now, should be leading such a struggle. But in fact, China is the first one to get out in front with a target. It remains to be seen, of course, whether they'll implement it. But if we, if we do have these three economic powers committing to this, to a similar goal in a similar time frame, that's could be an amazing development. And the U.S. re-entering the, the Paris Climate Agreement as well, I think it gives us a small hope for, for, for the future. But we should definitely look into the whole windmill causing cancer thing before hump, we commit to anything. Hump, hump, hump. Back to periscope depth, <laughs> Sean. More on the trade front, I think we could also talk about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is to be signed very shortly, which would become the world's largest ever trade deal, surpassing even the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Even though it's shallower compared to TPP, it's also much broader in scope. And I think it's a sign of China's growing sway, if you will, in actually dragging this deal over the line, because it did look precarious at certain points. India's, for example, has pulled out last year or the year before. So China has actually managed to get this over the line, even though it's not as comprehensive as originally planned. I think it's a sign that Beijing is looking to regional partners to solidify its, its, its standing on the trade front. So I guess it's, it's an agreement. Folks are signing up to it. So is it, in a way, pressure by China, or is it China providing economic opportunity and access to markets, maybe maybe the experts can tell us. But we do see on other fronts that China is flexing its muscles. And I'll give you two examples. One is the th- this recent trade dispute with Australia, where they there are now many cargoes of Australian, I think, coal and wheat that are barley, sitting offshore, beef, barley, beef, and so on. And they've they've taken a very very hard line on that. And we know Australian exports are very focused on China. Right. I think the only exception they made was for iron ore. Mm. because it's so important to Chinese industry. So this is clearly a pressure point. There's another one that Charles Clover has written about, which is vaccine diplomacy. So the Chinese are developing vaccines as are others. They're making commitments to Asian partners to test and to to provide a large number of doses. And that seems to be a way also to gain friends and influence people and perhaps uh, win on the geopolitical front. It's a great book. It's a good book, huh? Winning friends and influencing people. Yeah, are you to, did you also take like Toastmaster and the Seven Habits? I think Confucius wrote that, no? Yeah. yeah How to win friends, influence people. And <laughs> that's then... the guy. And uh, <laughs> that's exactly the one. And No, sorry, Sun Tzu. Yeah, the, art of, pl- the art of winning friends and influencing people. <laughs> I think Plato wrote the Seven Habits of Successful People. Is that the one? <laughs> Plato Plato? I don't know which one it is. We know who you were going for. However, that Plato your wife told guy. you not to play the idiot anymore. Yeah, but I think it's a good contrast you do it does fit because we talk about serious <laughs> stuff but then we throw in some some stink bombs every now and then just to spice it up <laughs> <laughs> absolutely anyway but i digress and that, and that also <laughs> and that also gets us out of places when we're like we don't really know what we're talking about it's let's like, make a joke it's like rob blinks three times already joke <laughs> get me out of this <laughs> 
anyway, but we digress. We digress. So yeah, I think this is an indication that on one side you have the RECEP trade deal. On the other side, you see this growing, increasing weaponization of, of trade in the pursuit of national and, and regional interests. Now, whether or not this is going to be here to stay will be interesting, especially with the new Biden administration coming in. It'll be interesting to see whether this type of behavior will, will become the status quo or not. So just, just to build on that point, Artie, when we, when we look at analysis of trade in the coming years, they're still talking about U.S.-China trade as a determining factor. So the trade war, in quotes has been a big big driving factor up to today. And we don't think it's going to radically change in the coming years. So that will continue to be something that we that we have to watch. So China v. the U.S., however you want to describe it, is it will be something for those of us in the business to keep watching. There's no antidote on January 20th to this thing. And there's no, I don't think there's any realization in the U.S. or, or, or groundswell to stop it, even though the cost has been very high. Enormous. I mean, I think we'll know it's near or at the end when there's a Rocky sequel with a Chinese antagonist. Yeah, exactly. So, this is how we exactly. This is how we can. Uh, this is how we'll know. So when Rocky is uniting people after beating the the Chinese boxer, do we want to copyright that now? I mean, I do should, we want to try to? We should pitch that. We should pitch it before Sylvester Stallone dies. Yeah. Actually, folks, go to our YouTube channel where you'll see our pitch. The YouTube channel, which doesn't exist. We don't have a YouTube channel. No, we don't. I thought you're kind of the guy for that. We don't have a channel? Yeah, no, we don't. Okay, who do we do we talk about? The, okay. Probably me you would talk to. I'll get, I'll get to the back to the social media department. We can't department. hire interns because we had that comment. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wanted to talk about the, the Ant Group IPO. Yeah, so this is an interesting bit of news. I thought it's not strictly trade-related, but what we're talking now about trade wars and, and the weaponization of trade, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of add-on. So China has recently called off abruptly the Ant Group's IPO, which would have been the the largest IPO in, in history. And this is only days after the chairman, Jack Ma, of Alibaba fame, criticized Chinese financial authorities a few days earlier. As I said, this would have been the largest IPO in history. And I think, again, it highlights the vastly different modus operandi between China and these post-World War II countries, where you're seeing a much more state-driven model of, of finance, economics, and, and trade. So whereas in the U.S. or Europe, it would be a shock to see a country stop an IPO based on what a chairman said. I think in China, you're seeing that this is very much common practice. And you're seeing that also with the trade war with Australia recently, which has also came a bit abruptly which is following the Australian prime minister had asked for a investigation into the origins of coronavirus. And that's what followed this, uh, this trade war. Yeah. So I think we see, let's say, in the vaccine diplomacy, we see in the comprehensive economic partnership, we see in some of these, the moves that you're mentioning, China flexing its muscle in different ways. Exactly. And these are things I think we can continue to look at. And, and China's just their size, their ability to innovate, their weight in different markets. It, it may be a cliche, but th this will be a driver of trade for years to come when we need to keep, we, you know, we're, we're learning, I think, to recognize what some of these elements are. Charles Clover is an award-winning journalist and former Moscow bureau chief for the Financial Times. He's currently working as Nikkei Asia cover story editor based out of Japan. Charles has been with the FT since 97, working in a variety of roles for the newspaper based in Kiev, Baghdad, Kabul, London, and all points east. In 2011, he won the British Press Award, Foreign Reporter of the Year. And in 2014, he received an RIA Novosti Presvani Award. You did good. Typo? Right. It only took six tries for you to get it. What is it? It's an award. 
do you just write this stuff? You expect me to read it? Is this, his, is this like a... It's in his bio. Newscaster ceremony, you write whatever and I read it? He could have faked it and we wouldn't know. Anyway, we want to welcome Charles to the podcast and let's take it away. Rob, get us started. Charles, welcome to Tradesplaining. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Ardian. We want to start off We're with you telling here. us, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've been an expat, I guess, for 20 years. Tell us very briefly how the hell that happened. Well, let's see. About 20 years ago, God, that's a long time. I joined the FT. And so I was a freelancer in Kazakhstan for about a year. And then I was freelancer in Ukraine, a stringer, they call it. And, and then and then Osama bin Laden saved my career. After September 11th, I was sent to Afghanistan, where I worked for a year until it became fairly clear that the U.S. was going to invade Iraq, and I was moved to Kuwait and covered the invasion of Iraq as an embedded journalist with a U.S. unit. And I've been a staffer for the FT since, since well, since the Iraqi invasion, since 2003. In London as an editor slash bureaucrat and is based in Moscow as the bureau chief. And in Beijing after that, covering Chinese defense and foreign policy. Very good. But, okay. And you talked about your most recent assignment was China, and this is a little bit our China episode. And so you were covering the economy there. And what are we reading here? We read everything from China will soon collapse because they're too authoritarian. That's the foreign affairs typically comes up with something like that. And on the other hand, we hear China is the future, that they're going from a manufacturing giant to an innovation giant to an everything giant. But you've kind of been there and you've been watching it. So how would you describe there? Where, where would you say things, things are headed? They're kind of, they're both right. It's, it is a, an innovation giant. It's a trade giant that they're, for whatever reason, their, their economic management is just absolutely top notch. And in terms of managing their macroeconomy, if you judge their performance during the global financial crisis, if you judge their performance now, from a macro level, they're, they do very well. You know, nobody has any rights and, and it's a nightmare in some ways to, to live there. If you're an expat living in an expat compound, it's actually quite nice. But for, for a lot of Chinese people, it's, it's not. It's an incredibly stressful existence. But it, and it, Politically, it seems very stable, but all authoritarian regimes seem very stable until they're suddenly not. Yeah. And so I wouldn't, wouldn't want, I see no signs of collapse, right? But I've actually covered four premature regime transformations or whatever, coups or <laughs> yeah, whatever exactly. you, you'd call them in different countries. And they're never clear. They're never apparent from yeah. the guy who looks like he's in power until suddenly he's not. And, and the question is, will the Chinese leadership continue to have an orderly transition and orderly transfer of power the way they have since since Mao died? And that, that's not clear. Okay. So there's no imminent collapse, but they're never made Maybe we never predicted these kind of collapses. But, and there are, of course, tensions in the regime and so on. But what we see on the trade side seems to be the rich getting richer. So we, at, at first, COVID's this big accelerator of things changing. And we thought, ah, okay, now supply chains are going to change. People are going to manufacture elsewhere. There's going to be near shoring. But then now there's a massive increase in Chinese exports. And the Chinese companies, which kind of stayed cool during the crisis or were able to restart, are grabbing markets. So is it, yeah. it's just going to be more of the same, right? Chinese just, China just gets stronger or will there really be any change? Do you see any reason? Do you think this Amazonification is going to 
keep going? Yeah, I think China sees this as a, as a as a huge window of opportunity that they are they got their their economy is is now going full throttle and their society is more or less back to normal. Meanwhile, everybody else around them is is drastically weakened and distracted by the the pandemic. And so they're they're in in kind of geopolitical terms they're becoming very aggressive and they're they're kind of in their neighborhood with Taiwan and Japan and India and Hong Kong and economically yeah they're taking as as much of the opportunity as they can and what about i think you just wrote a piece on va- vaccine diplomacy is that economic what what is this about yeah that, that's just that's another kind of source of leverage that they they will inevitably have with countries in in their neighborhood that for for Indonesia, the Philippines, Myanmar, Bangladesh, the the only way out of this pandemic is 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 a vaccine. Maybe we can roll on to our next question. It turns out trade wars are not easy to win. The Fed has estimated, for example, share prices in the U.S. have lost almost $2 trillion in value. Others say it'll cost around $300 billion in trade by the end of 2020. This equates to around 300,000 jobs. So the question is, does any of this matter? Bob Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, has made a case that efficiency isn't really the be-all and end-all, and we need to find the balance between efficiency with other objectives. And in Geneva, we're hearing rumors of a new leader coming in the U.S., Biden, Joe Biden. So it's election. It's election month <laughs> exactly, in the U.S. So we won't know. Still watching CNN. Yeah, yeah. it's like a it's yeah, like an episode yeah. of The Apprentice. So we won't know who's actually president till January nineteenth, the season yeah. finale. So do you think anything will change vis-a-vis China? Were Uncle Joe to take the throne, if you will, and uh, more importantly for Geneva, will he save the WTO? They pay part of my salary, so that's and all of mine. Yeah. Well, I think the the one thing that both parties can agree on is is that they hate China. That's <laughs> been something that there's been a lot of debate about who is tougher on China, the Democrats or the Republicans, and it's it's. I think that that's the the one thing that they seem to you know, the, the one thing that's not going to change is that Biden has promised to hold the line on 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 China. I think this is this is this is broadly popular. I don't know if it's a good idea, but it's it's broadly popular. And I think Rob and I learned all about economics of trade and efficiency at, at SICE. And if you have free trade, you even if one country is, doesn't play fair, the another country, if it's a big economy, if it plays fair, the aggregate pool of wealth will be bigger. And so that, that's kind of been the theory in the past is that even if, if, if China is, is trading unfairly, that the U.S. should play by the rules and that this will it will still benefit in the aggregate. But I think the, the, the problem with... That, that's unless you live in Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, well, exactly. It's it's it's, it's the, the global trading system is is now generally thought to be unfair and distributes wealth badly and 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 so that that's one problem with 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 free trade with with China but the, the other thing i think more more broadly though is that the national security aspect of the relationship with China was kind of existed completely separately from the the economic and investment and trade relationship with China. And these were kind of on two completely separate planes. And so you could have near misses in the South China Sea with American and Chinese aircraft. And at the same time, 
Chinese companies listing on the U.S. stock exchanges, and and it wasn't. It was just like there there was a, a great economic relationship, and a, there was still a kind of a, a security confrontation with China, and they just existed in complete isolation from each other. And now what you've seen is the 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 trade and and investment relationship is starting to get subsumed within the national security aspect, having one of the weapons that you use on China now. Wasn't one of the theories also that if we start trading with them, like we start you know buying iPhones and stuff they'll be more like us. They'll play yeah. fair and they'll become Democrats and they would respect intellectual property. And in some ways, the WTO accession was supposed to lead the political transformation there. And the fair play was supposed to somehow come about. Has that is? Did you feel like that was happening? Is it happening? No, 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 of course not. And I'm not sure to what extent that was a good faith argument to begin with. I think what, what was happening is there were a lot of economic interests around multinational corporations having unrestricted access to Chinese markets and using Chinese manufacturing as a base to sell into the other market. And I think this 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 idea of gradually influencing and democratizing China was never probably seriously believed by anybody, but was mm brought out as a kind of a justification to rationalize in theoretical terms, giving a lot of concessions to China. So do you think that Bill Clinton, in something, a video I always remember, I was only a kid when it happened, but he said that famous quote that China trying to stop the internet is like nailing jello to the wall. So do you think he was being disingenuous when he said that? That's quite a famous quote, and he was obviously totally wrong. They, they <laughs> nailed it to the wall very easily. I think at the at the time that was probably the prevailing wisdom, and that actually he he didn't he wasn't being disingenuous. He thought that he probably did think that the internet would democratize China, and the thing is that the internet has democratized China in a in a weird way. If there's a train accident in China, it gets on Weibo, you and you, you can't cover up things the way you, if there's a chemical warehouse explosion in Tianjin in China. You can't cover it up the way you used to be able to. So does this matter? We referenced Bob Lighthizer. He said efficiency is in everything and we need to balance yeah, it with other yeah. objectives. Is that true? No, no, I don't think efficiency is everything. And I think you do have to have a trading system that it is not just about aggregate amounts of wealth produced, but you do have to look at the local and, and political effects of, of trade. Yeah, because um, we, we also heard from one of our earlier guests that Roderick wants to go back to a pre-WTO, a kind of GATT world. And yes. Whereas what we hear in Geneva is much more, we shouldn't be thinking about trade primarily. So we didn't say trade and environment or trade and labor. We say environment and trade. Trade is secondary in a way. Trade is a vehicle. It's complementary. Yeah. And uh, that, that so almost the conversation here is going in the other direction. In, in Geneva, if you meet a negotiator and you say anything about anything but rules, they will run. That's not my job. Labor's not my job. Environment's not my job. And in fact, mm -hmm. I think the pressure here is, no, you need to widen the conversation. Maybe it's not about that the WTO should control everything, but it's definitely not to shrink back to just tariffs. There's a couple of aspects of it. There's there's one is that the, the, the system, broadly speaking, concentrates wealth badly. Yeah. The distribution of wealth that it creates is is, is a problem. And also it it seems to, if, if you're a mercantilist state centralized economy, you can manipulate it very easily. And I think the U.S. is going after the the second aspect of that. Mm. They're trying, they're going after China and they think they can somehow teach China a lesson. And I don't know if they can, but I, and, and then I, but I don't think there's any effort to kind of deal with the fallout 
of the unequal wealth distribution. And, and the unequal wealth distribution, it's a function of, of technology. It's a function of the global trading system. In SICE, in our economics classes, we were taught that, well, we should create as much wealth as possible, but the redistribution of that wealth should be handled by other institutions. But it's clear that those other institutions can't do that. And or won't, or the, or the political institutions won't do it. Yeah, they won't, they won't yeah. do it. So Charles, you've also lived and, and worked in Russia. You, you've met Putin. First question, what is he really like? Was he wrestling a bear? And did he have his shirt on when you met him? Yes. Yeah. I never, I never wrestled him. He was, no, I'd love to say that I met Putin one-on-one. No, I met Putin in a room full of 50 people and asked him a question during a press conference. And he was actually very nice. Wish I had a scary Putin story, but he's very intense and he really knows his shit. You can ask him any question and he's, he's just briefed on everything. I don't quite know how he does it. So we're going to ask you about your life. We're going to ask more about Charles than about Putin. But this last question is, we we hear even in the UN context, okay, we're we're kind of paid to be optimistic, but people are talking about building back better, building forward bolder. We're going to have a new sustainable world. COVID has shown us the way, and so or or, or has raised our consciousness. So. And, and I think in our interview guests, it's been maybe a fairly positive view. They think things are going to get better. So are you optimistic about the future? Do you think that things are going to get better in some way? Do you think that because China, China, I know, also announced that they're going to reduce carbon a lot, that they've got a plan in place. Do you yeah, buy that? The South Korea and China have all have all announced carbon neutral targets in the next, yeah, in the last last half year, I think. China was September and South Korea and Japan, I think, last month or something. Uh, I, yeah. and, that, and that's quite positive. And it, and it may well be due to this kind of new social consciousness that the, the virus has introduced, clearly hasn't penetrated to, to some countries, and including our own. But I, I see the value of society is something that has, I, I see has changed in a lot of ways. And what I think is going to change is that this American idea of freedom that was so popular at the end of the Cold War, this idea of self-interest just is, 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 we've seen this ugliest manifestation of it in the US and, and in the UK and in the heart of the West. And, and meanwhile, the, the kind of the, the public spiritedness of, of some of the Asian countries, um, not talking about China necessarily, but you know, they're the countries that have really defeated, controlled the virus, have, have done so through, through community spirit and a value of society over the individual. And, and that's, I think, reflected in some, to some extent in the new kind of environmental consciousness that, that we're seeing maybe, that, that this may, may be one of the reasons that, that China has won a lot of points for its management of, the, of, of COVID and its mm. vaccines and its PPE diplomacy and, and stuff. And, and so it, well, we can, they're thinking, well, we can win more points by announcing a carbon neutral target. And I think the Japanese and the South Koreans have also seen that. And they're kind of That's leading the way on this. And I think we're probably going to see more of that. So I, I guess the summary is maybe there is some kind of positive. There is, a, there is some kind of optimism to see there. And it's it's really up to maybe the U.S. to recapture that public spiritedness. We thought that always balanced the the rugged individualism. They were always both part of the American ideal. Yeah, yeah. We lost yeah, the community party. pulling for each other and, and stuff. Mm. I think that aspect has been lost and probably irretrievably at least a generation probably. 
Yeah, we're hoping for the next generation. We Maybe we didn't quite get there. Thanks, but, you know. thanks for screwing it up, Gen X. No, not your generation, Artie. No, we're, we're bitter <laughs> at 12 because of you guys. <laughs> oh my God, the anxiety. So so now we want to focus a little bit on expat life, What's what, what life's been like. So we're talking about a little bit your your career. You lived in Jordan, you lived in Ukraine, China, Moscow, Central Asia, London, but you're definitely not CIA, right? NSA, DHL. Any of those? No? DHL, yeah. Maybe DHL a lot. I'm, I'm not in the CIA. I have to be surprised. I have to tell people this a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were in the CIA, you would... You tell would, us. You would tell us. Totally. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they, they say when you join that you can tell your friends, right? <laughs> People you just met over Zoom in my case. But, but I'm not. Very good. Okay. That's, that's, so I think that's We clear. got that out of the way. That's, Does yeah. that satisfy you? Why your are you forehead? wearing a tux? Yeah, oh. I've got a scuba suit on underneath my tux here. So. <laughs> so one of the things we ask people is, what's it like looking back to the U.S. from where you are now? Are, are you noticing things now being abroad and looking in that maybe we wouldn't have noticed otherwise? Uh, yeah. Well, it's just funny. I tend to look at it through the eyes of a journalist analyzing exotic foreign countries. And I, I go back to the U.S. and I'm thinking about like the regime and stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you kind of, you see how precarious it all really is. And I think by now we can all see it's actually quite precarious. I think they'll pull through. But this this political consensus, we, we just always thought that the U.S. was always going to be a democracy. And I'm not sure it will be always. And that, that worries me a great deal. Democracy is like a marriage. It takes work. <laughs> okay, it does. It does. And sometimes it takes a deep state. A deep state of nirvana. <laughs> So we're coming around to, to some of the questions that Artie really needs. To, we're doing a little bit of a survey here. By Artie, he means we. One of the, <laughs> one of the, one of the rites of passage in Geneva is if you really want to be an expat, you really know you're here when your bike has been stolen. So have you had a bike stolen? And if you did, what's the story? I've, yes, I've had a bike. St- I had a bike stolen in China, stolen in Ann Arbor, <laughs> Michigan. Did they copy it and return it? <laughs> yeah. No, it was, it, was all, it was a copy already. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. What's your favorite kebab place globally speaking? I don't know if you've been had the chance to visit Geneva. This is the first time we've interviewed somebody outside of Geneva. I have been to Geneva. Geneva has wonderful kebabs. So please weigh in. Stands out. Kebabs are great and the water is warm. Yeah, it's the first thing I think about when I think of Geneva is kebab. You're right. We've got a kebab truck in Forest Row where I'm living right now. Oh, that's fabulous. How's that? And they have a chili sauce that I really like. But I don't know what the name of the... It's a truck. And the kebab truck on Forest Lane, Sussex. That's like the kebab truck. Okay, that works. But I'm not sure how we're going to collate with that with the other data. Because for us, we've got basically two answers. El Amir or Parfum de Beirut. And like any good economist model, we don't allow for external variables, which will mess up with no. our already preconceived notions of what... I don't think anybody has really answered it's like, this question. Okay. What's your favorite? Which is your favorite? Parfum de Beirut. Whichever is... Artie, what's your favorite? I'm asking the questions here. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. But it's El Amir. I believe you. I believe. But you haven't been to the Forest Road kebab truck. Not Just yet. Saying. Well, I take that as an invitation. Uh, yeah, that's how I took Forest it. Road, Forest Road Flights kebab are truck. Flights are cheap now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and empty. Ch- and, and then non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think we need to we need to liberate you, but uh, we definitely want to hear you plug your stuff. What yeah. where can people find you? What should they be reading? What are you what's what's coming? I'm currently on secondment to Nikkei Asia, Nikkei Asian Review, which is just renamed itself Nikkei Asia. So the the FT is owned by Nikkei, and so every year a couple of FT people go to Nikkei for for a year to do a secondment, help them with their English language publication. So that's what I'm doing. So if you want to see my work without my name on it, you can read Nikkei Asia's cover story every week. I edit that. And how about your book? Oh yes, and I wrote a book. I did. Uh, I wrote a book <laughs> called Black Wind, White Snow, and it's about the rise of Russian imperial nationalism over a century. And uh, it's my favorite book about the rise of Russian imperial <laughs> nationalism over a century. And I think it will be yours too. Um, and then you got the book that you're still writing that you mentioned. The book that I'm still writing that the, I mentioned, yeah. So that's that's a book about Russia and China, which is coincidentally the last two places that I lived. And it's about the... Uh, I haven't decided what's it about yet, but it's, uh, it's about the rise of Russian and Chinese authoritarian models in the world or something like that, I think. Sounds good. Maybe that's a, that's a subtitle. It's a good start. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't have a title yet. Okay. Well, uh, maybe we'll spitball that uh, on the next call. So thanks a lot, Charles Clover, for joining us and for sharing Thank your you. insights on China Thank, and Russia. Thanks, thanks, Artie. Very nice to talk to you guys. Thank you. Good luck with the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So that eases us already into the next segment, Overheard at the UN Beach. We have a word that we've overheard that I wanted to have you elucidate for us. This I haven't taken any drugs, so I don't think I can elucidate. I'm elucidating drugs. right now. <laughs> <laughs> so this one is the future of work. We hear this from our colleagues at the ILO and other institutions. What does this mean to you, future of work? Well, for me, Rob, I think it's just in, it's an indicator that the way we do things nowadays is bound to change. COVID has shown us that it's speeding up processes, which we were knew were already on track. So remote working, working from home, things like this are here to stay. It also shows us that we're going to have to be taking care of the people who are left out of this sort of transition, right? The people who aren't able to, let's say, work remotely or do a podcast remotely. And we need to alleviate the, the issues that those will cause. Very good points there. Thank for, you. For me, the future work means doing the same thing I'm doing right now for at least another five years Hopefully. until my UN pension kicks in. That's Hopefully. Because it's a race against time. Middle manager is one of those professions most likely to be automated in the coming years. Actually, I just got an email saying that Siri is going to be taking over your job. <laughs> Dear user, you have been automated. <laughs> you have been made redundant. <laughs> Goodbye. This is a fear for all of us in middle management because we know the value we add, but sometimes it's difficult to measure. Well, it's more qualitative than quantitative in that aspect. And it's really about the soft skills nowadays, right? How does the future work look for millennials, Artie? Look real good? Have you seen Blade Runner? Yeah. yeah. Which one? The yeah. new one. Either of them. Yeah. It's not good. That's that's the future of work for both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the future of work. I'm going to be yeah, hunting yeah. Harrison Ford. You're going to get a big saber? Hunting Harrison Ford in the future. That's what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> Pretty cool job. Have you seen, actually, no, actually a good comparison is Mad Max. Yeah. Beyond Thunderdome. That's the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. With I have seen Turner. it. I, 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 of course, watched the first one, not the, not the other yeah. ones. Yeah. Dystopian hellhole, some would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But there's, a, of course, lights of hope in there. Yeah, there's green shoots of, of hope everywhere. Yeah, they're being run over by massive dune buggies. 
in thongs. <laughs> so that's the future of work for the millennials. Yeah. Yeah. Master blaster. Hashtag. <laughs> Well, folks, that just about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Charles Clover, for joining us and discussing all things China, supply chains, and of course, Vladimir Putin's height. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did. That's right, Rob. Thanks. And also, don't forget to download this episode if you have not already and to subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out in just a few weeks' time. And don't forget to tell your friends. Until then, remember to build back better. Hashtag leg day. <laughs>